Hello everybody and welcome to another episode. In this episode, Darlene and I are going to be talking about or discussing green computing. I'm Mark Clark, um, as you guys hopefully know by now, I'm from South Africa where I work for an open source solutions company in Johannesburg. Um, Darlene, how are you today? Thanks Mark for having me and for those of you who don't know, I, I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada and I work for a Linux-based development company and uh, so green computing is something that we focus on at my uh, my business, so this particular topic again is very topical for me today, and hopefully uh, I can share some of the insights that I've gathered from around the globe uh, on the different challenges people are facing with their computing. Okay, and have you had any experiences this week that you'd like to chat about uh, respect to open source uh, software at all? Yeah. Well, I know over the weekend I uh, spent some of my spare time uh, installing a virtual box and uh, it was really smooth. I put it over top of 810, Ubuntu uh, okay. 810, and I used a 2.1 release and it went really well. I installed XP on uh, four multiplied stations with uh, Office 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a hopped-up machine. Uh, I had a, a Phenom Quad a Core processor in there, and it handled all four uh, instances really well. Okay. How about you, Mark? What have you been playing with this week? Well, I was I was planning to do my uh, upgrade of my Ubuntu uh, workstations, but um, there's one machine which I've got, which I don't know. It's, it's like you always get these motherboards from hell, and this machine's got one of them. I've had the machine for like three years now. And I've never been able to get any distro to run on it out of the box. When I first got it, I had to use Gen 2 on it um, to compile everything and get all the right drivers compiled and all of that because all the other distributions never had anything. You know, never had the right drivers for the hard disk and the SATA drives and all of that. And then uh, I switched to Ubuntu. Um, I think it was uh, probably about 7.10, I think it was. And even then, that wouldn't install in graphical mode. I had to download the the um, text installer and do it that way, and then configure X to get it to run on the machine. And it became a bit better, but the screen resolution was always bad. Um, so I was hoping this time that um, Ubuntu would install on it just fine, but it never did. So eventually, I just gave up and I put in a video graphics card, and they didn't use the onboard one. Uh, but then Ubuntu was having problems because it would boot up and install fine, and then you would you know shut down the machine and bring it up the next day. And the screen resolution will be gone and it'll be into low graphics mode again. So, yeah, it's been a. I think it's one of those motherboards, you know, when you get them when there's this sort of change in technology and they have like dual things. So, it's got a whole lot of dual stuff like dual SATA RDE and also, you know, the PCI Express and PCI. And so, it just, I don't know, I think it's just a confused motherboard. You know, but uh, right. eventually I had to, had to give up on that and I just dumped OpenSUSE 11.1 on there and that's it's working fine for now. So, yeah, so it's a bit sad, but. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to relegate so it to the a, server. Yeah, so have you uh, done anything with Jaunty? I know that uh, we've installed and are working to move our software onto the Jaunty platform and uh, had a few issues, like this week we had the X server, it's causing uh, you know 100% CPU usage on it, but uh, I just was watching my identity, I can see the communities coming together and they're all trying to solve you know, and test all the new features out and commenting on it, so I think that's good. Have you had any... Uh, have you installed it and played with it at all, Mark? No, I haven't. Just briefly, as I said, on the on the on the one desktop at home, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that was then mm-hmm. before I, I canned it and just went with OpenSUSE. I did try, you know, my, my main machine, which is a laptop. It's always a, a mission. I normally upgrade it. Uh, you know, the, the 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 Ubuntu and Debian upgrades normally go very very smoothly. But every now and then, I like to do a 
fish and stool because uh, you know just to clean any gum fat and you know all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the problem I got with this machine because it's a work machine, you know, you don't want to lose any data because even if you back up home directory, there's always some project which you got sitting in VAR, www or some MySQL database, you know, something like that which you forget about mm-hmm. sitting that's not in your home directory. Um, so a bit, I was a bit dubious about doing a fish install. So I thought, well, let me just try and upgrade first. Um, because the machine's also showing signs either of age or something else is wrong at Mark. I don't know. Uh, it's just sort of uh, Firefox is extremely slow. Sometimes you have to click on tabs and wait like three seconds for it to switch out and all of that. So I thought I would try the upgrade and upgrade manager. When I tried that, it gave me a warning about an ATR config thing. You know, I use dual screen on it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's with the ATR big desktop stuff. And it said it wouldn't support that, so I just said, I'll stuff it. I'll just you know, work, live with the machine as it is. I, th- I think it's about to die anyway, so I might as well just leave it and let it go in peace, you know? <laughs> and yeah. rescue it once it finally other, dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I'm um, working on over the weekend, uh, actually, I just had a young fellow in Ecuador. We're trying to do the crossover Linux install so we could okay. uh, install the Office. Crossover, crossover Office. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, to install it on uh, an Ubuntu uh, distribution, it kind of hit a little bit of a wall. But we're going to see if we can walk, work through it. And uh, I don't know. I I wish I knew if somebody had actually been successful with it. They must be because these yeah. guys are selling licenses. And you know, maybe I just need to research some more forums and see what's coming up. But uh, yeah, so that's my project for the weekend to see if I can get that to work yeah, as well. Yeah, I'd be interested to find out. Frustrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Find ahead, out because those, you know, I don't know. I always hear people talking about crossover office, and well, quite frankly, I mean, I live in this in the world now because it's completely, you know, Linux based. So I don't even bother with any Windows stuff anymore, any of that. And you always hear, you know, it's, it's a bit surprising to hear how always people are still trying to, you know, like merge the two worlds and run the Windows apps on the on Linux. It's, to me, it just doesn't make sense. You know, if you're going to switch, why not just switch? Okay, I mean, obviously, I understand some situations. There's some spreadsheet which they absolutely need. You know, everybody thinks that they can't live without Excel or something like that. I mean, in my situation, it just seems bizarre. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's just maybe it's just the way. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, and I agree with you, Mark, because, you know, I, I tried to get most of the people that work with me to put on OpenOffice and Thunderbird and Mozilla and, and not even look, go back, you know. But I just, uh, I don't know, this last two weeks has been particularly frustrating trying to bring people over from the dark side. But, um, and their reliance or their, just their mindset, you know, and I would think going into some fresh markets that I've been working in, like Pakistan, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking, so if they're just going in with, they're just getting a computer, does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, if they've never been exposed to Microsoft, and, but, you know, they, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in the background that we're maybe not aware of. But I back mm-hmm. to what you were saying, though, about yeah. trying to get Windows apps running on Linux, yeah. I, I really don't support that either. I know they want to use Visual Studio, and I think that's one of the reasons Visual we're trying to do different things. Yeah, <laughs> on Linux. What the heck? <laughs> uh, well, the one I don't know. Uh, I don't know. That's why I tried the virtual box. Yeah, I just that's uh, why I tried the virtual box. Um, but uh, it's at a university, and we're trying to do a showcase deployment. And um, I don't know. I just said, you know what? If we had four stations running Linux and two running Windows, mm-hmm. that would be the best showcase, I think. Uh, you know, and then you could always slide the virtual box down, and they can see that Ubuntu is actually running in the background. That's what's making it so stable, right? Yeah. 
but I'm pretty sure that education institutions and they must have like what you call them like educational licenses. I'm pretty sure Microsoft yes. wouldn't want them running them on. They probably find the license hidden somewhere. There's some clause which saying they have to run it on mm-hmm. Windows. So. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, we'll see what happens. That's yeah. between them and Microsoft. Yeah. They insist on going down that path. They can work out the, the mm. nitty-gritty details in the end. But, yeah, yeah no, I just uh, wish that people would just, I don't know, just give it a try. It's like jumping off the diving yeah. board. But, you know, once they're there, it's not so bad. Yeah, it's good. I don't understand it. I mean, uh, you've got tons of these people downloading Windows 7 Beta and trying it out. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, for me, the last time I really used Windows was before... Um, Windows, like, what was it, 2000, I think, and XP, obviously, you know. And, and like, I mean, it's still the same. You go there, you don't, have, you know, you don't have to sort of use the machine to actually understand what it does. The networking still in the same place. You switch to classic view. If you're in some client, then they want you to sort out why the you know, machine's not picking up an IP address from the DHCP server. So, yeah, you know, I, I just, I don't even, you know look at that stuff anymore and it's a bit, a bit weird how some people even even the guys that are hardcore Linux people still sort of down what is it you know, there's this claim oh we have to keep up to date with it because of our work and I don't really know whether that's completely true you know <laughs> I mean maybe I was living in a in a world of our own creation where we completely you know, Linux based um, but yeah you know it's just something I do think it's a bit over exaggerated the need to sort of have some Windows you know software mm-hmm. in there because there's this I kind of say like critical apps, like maybe there's some, uh, what would you call it, um, financial application or something like that. But yeah, you know, the vast majority mm-hmm. of things you can get by without without using any Windows software. Mm. Yeah, and so my next challenge has been to try to find the open source equivalent. So when they come to me and say, I need, I absolutely mm-hmm. need this program, then I go out and find the open source equivalent and say, hey, how about you give this a try? Mm. And um, a lot of times, you know what? It, it really does. It's not that bad. Yeah. And uh, I think they're just they're much better. And uh, yeah. Anyways, it's just a learning curve, and it's yeah. just being able to present that option much better. And it's it's sometimes frustrating though, because uh, for me, like in, say for Pakistan, as I mentioned, uh, the government itself endorses the move to open source software. Mm-hmm. But at the end, the Ministry of Education is still insisting on bringing in a Microsoft product, you know. Mm. And I'm just, they'll do well in the workforce, whether mm. they learn on Open Office or Microsoft Office. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. that brings us to our topic of yeah. green computing and how we can, uh, how we can help make a difference a little bit. Yeah, so. So green computing, do you want to give a definition of what you understand green computing is and maybe just highlight the issues around green computing? Sure. I I believe that there's a lot of what we call greenwashing around green computing. And I feel that people, you know, they just do the the basic surface, um, you know, uh, play – they basic surface uh, tasks, you know, okay, I'll turn my monitor off every day, I'll make sure that my, my PC goes into power save mode, mm-hmm. and, and these kind of things. But that's not truly green computing, and I think there's it's a lot more depth to it. I believe that if you need to look at something like reduce, recycle, and reuse, and mm-hmm. that will, uh, those three things um, will lead you to a truly a green computing environment. What do you think, yeah. Mark? Yeah, look, yeah, in South Africa, I must admit, recycling, you know, it's not really a big issue. Um, you know, I know in America, mm-hmm. often you see the, uh, on the movies, the Hollywood movies and uh, the sitcoms and stuff, people always go on about recycling and they've got different color bins and stuff. You know, we just throw everything into the dustbin and, 
<laughs> and it gets quieted off. <laughs> and it gets quieted off to the to the to the dump. But um, you know, having said that, I mean, I must admit, I don't think I ever in my life, you know, if, if I went to a dustbin and I saw a computer sitting in the dustbin, that'll be a very strange sight in South Africa. You know, um, mm-hmm. I've never actually thrown any piece of hardware away, any old handheld kind of device, any old cell phones. Um, you know, so I think maybe it's also a bit of a difference thing. You know, it's much more of a sort of consumerist society in, in North America where, you know, people just throw things away when they don't need it, you know, and that kind of stuff. Whereas, yeah, I think people mm-hmm. sort of utilize the, you know, they find a use for the, for the hardware somewhere along the line. Um, not saying it's not going to become a problem, yeah, because sooner or later, you know, the things become old and broken and you can't replace the parts anymore because they're just not being pro- um, produced. Um, but you find mm-hmm. that it's very, you know, yeah, we're still sort of, I suppose we'd like to say sort of, you know, a couple of years behind, um, like the first world in terms of, of recycling um, and, and sort of, you right. know, it's really sort of putting any attention to that and having different collection days and stuff. I know in my suburb where I live, um, you know, there's like a sort of a, a, what you call a private company that's trying to do that. Um, you know, I'm a, I must admit, I don't really participate in that. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> oh, I'm a hardcore recycler. <laughs> Only because I lived where there was no garbage pickups, so we mm. had to recycle. And actually, mm. now in this, I've moved to the city. Mm. We have collection bins, and they happen to be very close to me, so it's not mm. a big issue to to collect and go sort it out. And now I actually got home yesterday, and there's a a recycling bin sitting in my front yard that they will pick up with my garbage. So that makes it even more convenient. They actually, you can put garbage in one bin and your recyclables in another bin. But back to the PC recycling, I know here in Alberta, we've just recently, I would say in the last three years, uh, really came up with a concrete e-recycling program. Except for people don't know the in-depth behind the scenes, what goes on, (laughs) because it's kind of a, one of those things where the first world does these things to make themselves feel good but uh, it goes to a plant uh, the things like uh, the e-recycling they get all gathered up go to a plant and they dismantle everything and I, I believe they probably use some of the parts I, under, I heard that they use it for things like um, some of the boards and chips can be used mm-hmm. in stoves and fridges to, to program okay. them because they've mm-hmm. got those computerized dashboards now on them but mm-hmm. other than that you know they, they shred it all up all the green cards and stuff, shred them all up, put them in shipping containers, send them to China, mm-hmm. where they melt them down, extract whatever gold there is in the traces, and then they burn it, do whatever in China, and all the pollution is over there. Yeah. And it's kind of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if that's true recycling, if you just kind of hide it yeah. in another way. I mean, I've heard about but that as I've heard about that as well, the sort of dumping of the of the waste in the, in, into the third world, essentially, especially yeah, in Africa as well. You know, it's often many of these programs masquerading as, oh, we are to give computers to, you know, children in the third world. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about the one letter per child project. I'm talking about, you know, like secondhand PCs. It's just cheaper for the corporates to come and dump them in Africa and claim it's a charitable um, you know, donation rather than actually dispose of them because it's more expensive to actually shred them and dispose of them properly. So that's why also you get some of these, um, you know, you know, some companies bringing their old computers out into Africa. It's precisely because of that because actually it's not altruistic of them. It's actually just plain old uh, economics. It's cheaper for them to ship it to Africa and, you know, offload it in the docks, yeah, um, than, as you say, take it to some recycling plant in, in the first world where it's quite expensive to recycle. So there's all those sort of political issues around this whole whole thing as well, you know. Um, 
Yeah, and I understand that, that the EU has some pretty strict um, regulations regarding computer recycling, and that's leading to more of that dumping into Africa. I know that uh, this e-learning conference, that's one of the topics is how do you, you know, what do you do with these end-of-life computers mm -hmm. that can't handle the heat and the, mo the humidity and the, t the you know, the, the uh, conditions mm -hmm. that they're actually deployed in, and a month or three later, they're, they're just paperweights, and yeah. then people don't realize is that there's lead and all kinds of stuff that's, uh, and mercury that are in these computers, and then they're leaching, leaching into the groundwater, leach you know, there's yeah. long-term um, side effects to these, um, to these uh, computers being dumped there, so... Anyways, well, that's true. Um, the problem is Africa. We've got so many other issues to worry about. That you know, <laughs> contamination yeah. of the groundwater. <laughs> if it kills well, you in like fifty also, years' time, it's not as important as something that can kill you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that uh, you guys also have some stuff that's coming down the pipeline, though, and that yeah. is that the uh, there hasn't been a, any long-term planning for power, especially in South mm. Africa. I actually looked at two cases, one in mm. South Africa and one in Brazil, because we actually had a big deployment in Brazil and uh, reducing the power usage in the computer system, the, the software that I work with, was quite a, an attractive proposition. Mm. And I believe that mm. uh, in South Africa, because they the government didn't react when they were told like 10 years ago that there was uh, you know a serious energy crisis coming, Mm. That um, yeah, of course a, they didn't react in time. Yeah, the thing with with the energy crisis in Africa is is a couple of factors involved besides plain incompetence. Um, you know, because with, with globalization and we all seen the results of globalization now with the economic crisis that we're living with. But um, you know, part of globalization was the IMF would come to the third world country and tell them you have to privatize all of your government owned industries and you know and they are inefficient and and not well run. And the power stations, power utility in South Africa was government control. So they turned it into what's called a parastatal, which is basically is run on private principles, but it's still only it's still a monopoly and it's still owned by government. So you get the worst of both worlds. You get the worst of the private industry and you get the worst of government-controlled industry. And so you know the idea was, okay, well, what we'll do is we will deregulate energy and all these other companies are supposed to pop up and start supplying energy. But the utility is supplying at such a low price. South Africa had the lowest energy in the world uh, for the last decade or so. Um, so much so that a lot of these like aluminium smelters started being, you know, plans to build huge factories in South Africa because, you know, it uses a lot of electricity. Um, but because the price was so low, it wasn't economical for any, you know, sort of private utility to, to compete with them. So, yeah, so now we're sitting with a situation, like in 2008, we had like rolling blackouts. Um, because of the, you know, they had ran out of reserve margin, plus they hadn't done maintenance on all of the power stations. So yeah, that that uh, you know upset a lot of a lot of South Africans, especially when you're stuck in those traffic jams. That wasn't pleasant. But yeah, so it is, it is a luck. Well, one of the side effects of the economic downturn, now, of course, is that our reserve margins back <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because a lot mm -hmm. of the furnaces and the uh, manufacturing and the mines have sort of had to shut down now. They're gone. They're gone belly up. So you know we got a bit of a reprieve, um, which will hopefully you know, give us enough time to, to rebuild the factories. But what's going to happen for sure is that the, the price of energy is going to sh go through the roof, and the utilities are really asking for uh, way above inflation price increases. Um, mm -hmm. I heard it was like 14%. Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be more than 25%. Uh, then, like, I mean, it's so ridiculous. I mean, I think it's going to be like a 50% increase in electricity costs over the next like, two years or something. Um, mm hmm and yeah, so there's, besides that, how in sudden, suddenly you know you have to become energy conscious now. Whereas before, I mean, 
you know, it didn't cost you anything to leave your computers running and stuff like that. So that's the, that's the one thing. And then obviously there's the green issue as well. So there's two things, you know, because I think sometimes there's a confusion between the green issues around energy and the, and the energy crisis. You know, so the energy crisis to a degree has got nothing to do with green issues. <laughs> you know, you have to mm-hmm. just conserve energy because basically it's not enough to go around, um, which is leading to a lot of these mm-hmm. energy-saving initiatives. And then obviously there's mm-hmm. in some countries like more suppose in the first world where there is sufficient power, but it's just producing too much um, pollution. Uh, contrary to the greenhouse mm-hmm. gases and all of that, that you know you have concerns around this energy, and um, you know basically that relates to green computing. Right, and I believe that because you know we've been conditioned. I don't, and it's everywhere that we need to leave our computers on 24/7 because mm-hmm. oh well, you know if you if you turn your computer off every day, that's hard on it's hard on you know on the machine, or it'll corrupt your Windows if you shut down every day. Well, we're not talking Windows, just Windows, but Linux, yeah. you know. Not, anyways, but that's people's mindset. Yeah. Or well, it has to stay on. Like if you're in a business situation, oh, it has to stay on 24 hours a day because they push through all the updates and everything overnight out of peak hours, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So people think they have to have this 24 seven uh, thing running with their computers but I believe there's lots of other ways to get around that yeah I mean you also asked Africa remember we were you know basically people were taught to leave their computers on because of the especially in the early days I think there'll be power surges when you turn I think I don't know if you could blow your motherboard um, in those days computers were horrendously expensive you know they weren't as cheap as they are now so you didn't want to you'd rather pay for electricity than, than blow your motherboard <laughs> and then have to mm-hmm. like save up another year to get your computer <laughs> But um, right. you know, one of the options though, with with um, to the green computer. I mean, we, we've spoken about e-waste. Just sort of recap a bit. We've spoken about e-waste, which is disposing of your old computers and stuff. And I think basically what you're saying there in South Africa, we don't really have a policy in place yet. I think they will get there because what happens in South Africa, we tend to have the world's best laws, um, but they never get implemented or there's just no capacity to carry them out. So I'm pretty sure we're going to come up with like this law that's going to end up costing us money. When I say us, I mean the taxpayer. And, um, you know, but it will be one of the best in the world, but it will never get implemented. Um, and then the other thing we were just discussing now is sort of, um, uh, sorry, actually, I actually lost my train of thought there. <laughs> um, oh, it was just about the energy crisis in terms of, just, let me start there. Mm-hmm. So, so what we were discussing now then was, was the energy crisis around electricity and the electricity supply. And also, I mean, energy also, is, I suppose, relates to oil as well to a degree, you know, I mean, there's also a crisis mm-hmm. around that. But I think now, and then you started talking about, you know, actually the hardware that people are running. And I think there's um, a couple of issues there. One is that people often buy these machines with like way bigger um, power supply units than they need. You know, like you get the 250, the mm-hmm. 350 watt, and the 750 watt unit. And all these guys, you know, and obviously what happens is the manufacturers or the distributors are keen to sell you the 750 one because it's more expensive, so they make more money. Um, but you don't really need that. You know, you get all these gamers right. that maybe they need it if they're running all of this fancy graphic hardware and stuff. They're often it's just mm-hmm. overkill. You know, and you get guys buying these cases with all these flashing LEDs and you know, and it just draws more power from the from the unit. So yeah, it ends up. I mean, I think that's an aspect of green computing that you know, if, you, if you're sort of a home uh, consumer at home, and what can you do about it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, just make sure that you only buy as much power. As, you know, the machine should have as much power as you need to to power all your peripherals, basically. Yeah, I call that SUV computing in Canada or North America. Mm-hmm. We have SUVs, right? So mm-hmm. instead of a smart car, 
a smart car kind of computer, you got an SUV, which has way more power than most people need. And so I agree with you. But unfortunately, I have a disco computer because yeah, I just I just had to have one with that open side and the flashing lights. But uh, I uh, <laughs> so there you go. There's my contribution. I can change up a little bit. But uh, back to what. <laughs> Back to what you were saying, Mark. Also, I think, too, back to green computing and end of life of PCs, mm-hmm. is that we, we should be putting some of the onus on the, the on the, the manufacturers, like to design with end of life in mind when they're mm-hmm. when they're designing these PCs, and that it shouldn't the onus shouldn't be on us as taxpayers to pay for disposal. Like I know here in Alberta, we have to pay ten dollars for every monitor we buy and so much for every PC we buy to pay for the e-recycling program in the end. But why should we be totally fitting uh, footing that cost when it should be, like I say, uh, end mm-hmm. of life? Or have a, I noticed that uh, in my research that HP has quite a good program for refurbishers. Mm -hmm. So you can refurbish these, you know, they've got a set of standards and people can, because I I, I, uh, was a big proponent of refurbished PCs coming out Mm -hmm. of uh, businesses, you know, refurbing them up and then selling them to home Mm -hmm. users and it was just fine for them. Actually, I have one right here on my desk. Okay. Nice little uh, HP compact uh, small form factor that came out of an office and it's uh, Mm -hmm. done my... uh, my kids well here for three or four years yeah. and um but anyways yeah like i say just to design them with end of life in mind and how to expand their capacity but by using linux you know you can you can extend the lifespan even longer because it's less demanding yeah on the uh on the hardware i just don't know is, uh, they also have some of these refurbs yeah in South africa but they tend to be these brand name machines and man, they they're still horrendously expensive. I, I don't know what the pricing is like in Canada, but you know you can get a generic machine, brand new, cheaper than a refurbished brand new machine. So you sort of say, well, you know, why why would I spend the money on this refurb machine? And it's not that much of a discount, you know. And they already like mm-hmm. about like a two years old or something. So you sort of, yeah, it's just a bit a bit bizarre. I don't know whether you find it the same there in, in Canada or not. No, I think they're actually they're pretty reasonable, and mm-hmm. for the price I pay for the base machine, if I needed to throw in an extra, you know, a, hard, a larger hard drive or mm-hmm. a DVD burner or whatever, it was, um, yeah, it was pretty cost effective, mm-hmm. and uh, so that is usually the only thing I had to upgrade was either the size of the hard drive, because remember they came out, they were almost like thin clients, right? Mm-hmm. When they were in the in the uh, business area, they didn't have a DVD writer, okay. and they just had a basic hard drive, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, so that's that was my uh, my my experience with that, okay. and also um, on that on that note, there's also another side to things like uh, we could talk about. Um, I talked about the need to power down for updates, and uh, Intel has this B Pro technology. Have you mm-hmm. heard of that, Mark? No, no, I where it allows you. Okay, so it started out on their laptops and mm-hmm. on their. Um, Centrino processors, and now it's available for desktops. So it actually allows patches and upgrades to be downloaded, if the even if the PC is powered off or unresponsive. Okay. So that eliminates that need for leaving the PCs on all night in order to yeah. get their upgrades. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think that's a pretty cool technology that uh, you know you can actually buy that in addition. You can look for that particular specification yeah. on your uh, processor. All the standby stuff, though, I don't know, because you know, a lot of the things that people are complaining about now, you know, you've got some guy who worked out how much the little red light, LED light on your TV screen, how much energy it uses, you know, it stays on all the time with your remote and stuff. So, you know, all these things would seem like a good idea eventually. 
turn mm. out uh, turn out once you sort of start producing one mass and and, lo- and there's a mass adoption of it, they actually start add up quite a bit. But I suppose it's still better than leaving your your machine on, you know. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not yeah. quite sure, but it also seems like it's a nice solution for um you know for for the hardware vendors to get in on. And initially, of course, it's going to be horrendously expensive. I don't I don't doubt that it'll be you know out of the range of most people because I'll sell it to business at an exorbitant price. And, but it should mm-hmm. come down in future, you know. Uh, well, apparently it's been out for a couple of years on the Has laptops, it? but uh, yeah, the laptop? so oh. it'll be in- yeah, so it'll be interesting to see um, how it's trans, you know, trans, you know, bring how it transcends over to the desktop mm. platform. But uh, yeah. one of the things you also talked about, and this is what tends to happen, yeah, I think, and well, at least what we do with the old machines, you know, with Linux, instead of recycling them or throwing them away and that kind of stuff. You can use, you know, you can basically turn them into sort of embedded devices or dedicated appliances of some type. Um, you know, you use them as firewalls or routers or yeah, a whole bunch of things, even as um, file servers. You know, you just put something like FreeNAS mm-hmm. or, or OpenFile on there, and away you go. You just got to make sure. The only issue, of course, is that obsolescence of the hardware. So, you know, if you've got like IDE disks and next few years aren't going to be any around, then they, they start failing. You, you can't really replace them. But I think. Right. The, the biggest challenge there normally is that these older machines, you know, it's, it's more the cases that they're just big and bulky, you know, because everything just gets smaller and they just look ugly. You know, so the, the biggest challenge yeah. there is more getting them to a smaller form factor machine and making them look, yeah, you know, just sort of refurbishing them and then able to use them mm-hmm. as, as, as dedicated devices or even as, you know, like Linux terminal server clients, that kind of stuff. So I think that's where also right. where open source and software can help a lot, you know, because everybody's... Uh, customizing and building these things for different architectures, um, you know, you can do uh, interesting things with them, which you can't really do with with like a Windows-based um, operating system. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing I, I wanted to talk about was again about was about desktop virtualization mm-hmm. because that allows for the elimination. I believe that's a very green practice because mm-hmm. it allows for you know the elimination of say nine out of ten computers, mm-hmm. and of course that goes to less power draw. It uh, again less e-waste, less you know the the, the lab itself. You don't have mm-hmm. to cool it because you know how older PCs generate a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so you're not paying for the air conditioning costs and so on. But I just think there's a lot of uh, benefit to that as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and that's we did a podcast earlier on virtualization. I think that's one of the biggest mm-hmm. benefits, at least in terms of the server room and the data center. You know, for green computing, is to use virtualization. And once again, I think you know Linux has the and the open source community has the has a lead and advantage there of being the hypervisor in which all these other virtual machines actually run. So yeah, and I got to agree mm-hmm. with you there. I think it's that, that's I mean I, you know if I'm talking to clients and you're advising them on this kind of stuff, you know rather than the first place we'll start is looking at the is looking at the server room, um, rather than sort of going right. to the the desktop clients and sort of changing things there because that also you know impacts on people and people are normally the biggest issue in any system change. Whereas in the server room, you right. hopefully you only got a few sysadmins to worry about. <laughs> right. So I know that your strong your strength is in the server room, and my strength is in the desktop side. So I do have to say that I think that uh, with the you know there's numerous Windows uh, virtualization clients now, and there's numerous you know Linux ones. One that I particularly work with that allows for for these desktop. Uh, you know where you can have an individual station, and mm-hmm. it works. You know you're doing all of your, your independent and fully functional, and mm-hmm. only requiring a monitor, keyboard, and mouse at each mm-hmm. at each station, and it can result in power savings of like up to eighty percent. Yeah. And the other um, 
The other thing, too, on green computing, there's another move uh, um, that's about, I guess, Mm -hmm. and that is uh, switching people, you know, at work instead of everybody having a desktop, but Mm -hmm. switching them to laptops. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Mm -hmm. because laptops now are so much more energy efficient than uh, than a regular desktop. I mean, with the whole laptop story and this energy efficiency, you also see now, you know, with processors getting so much more powerful, I mean, the emergence of, like, the netbooks and the lower-powered PCs that basically can, you know, if you're sort of just an office user of opening up a, you know, a spreadsheet or two or, or, um, or a process, word processor document, you can actually do that on these much lower-powered much lower powered machines, you know, and the whole ARM processors coming out. There's also another advantage where Linux and open-source um, operating systems have is that they run on all these architectures, and I know Windows doesn't, so it's a big threat to Windows. Because, I mean, the Intel Atom processor, I think, is... Uh, I remember reading somewhere that they reckon ARM now is going to sort of start replacing the Intel Atom processor on a lot of these netbooks. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I think it's, you know, what you're saying there about sharing machines as well. And that also goes with this desktop virtualization. I know one of our clients, you know, we're virtualizing their, their workstations. Um, so, then you have less PCs, especially if you've got, you know, it's like a hotel system. Uh, you know, like mm-hmm. so you only have so many people in the office at any one time. Otherwise, people are out in clients, that kind of stuff. So they can just log in and then launch their their particular virtual machine and, and work away at that, you know. So you get to actually share a machine, but you only see we share the operating system as such. So you know, there's a lot of interesting things that you can do with that. All right, so Mark, let's just uh, recap what we covered today in our in our uh, episode. So we talked again about reduce or recycle, reduce, and reuse. And so some of the key points that we had covered included uh, the fact that we felt you didn't re- it wasn't really required any longer to leave your computers on 24/7. It was kind of a I think it's a myth now with especially with uh, UPSs. Uh, now you know and power surge protectors like you had mentioned that uh, back in the day it was uh, a concern about getting a surge through your computer and um, as well we talked about uh, the fact that you could take you know if you're moving out your fleet of computers that are your business you could actually use those other um, applications and firewalls uh, make application servers out of them because Linux runs on stuff that's a little less demanding yeah. Anything to add, Mark, to that? Yeah, we just touched on uh, virtualization. Um, yeah, there's desktop virtualization, which is sort of becoming uh, sort of quite prominent now. Uh, server virtualization has been, you know, the sort of favorite topic of the day for a while now. I think that's sort of settling down, and the technologies are maturing there. So now, desktop virtualization is becoming quite important. Um, yeah, and then also, you know, we talked a little bit about I think some of the advantages that open source has in this whole green computing field. Because we run on far more architectures than you know Windows does, especially like the ARM processors, and I think Windows or Microsoft faces a big challenge there. And not only that, they also face a big challenge in you know I mean they're keeping Windows XP allows solely for the purpose of running on netbooks, you know even though they wanted to kill it off a while ago. And then they have these ridiculous licensing terms that you can only use so much memory and the screen must be of this size if you want to run Windows XP on it, you know. And clearly they've got they've got a problem because they can't like Linux we can take components out, we can add components in, we can recompile the kernel. You know, and, that, and we're not worried about people running it on taking that operating system and running it on a more powerful machine. And so Windows has all of these proprietary issues around it that, that's causing it to have problems with this whole green computing thing. And quite frankly, I don't think they're going to be able to, to cut it in, in the whole green computing market. So that's a great advantage for, for open source there. Um, and I th- mm-hmm. 
And uh, you had sent me an article about uh, the increase in power rates that you, you guys are facing in South Africa. Do you want to elaborate? I think we talked about that earlier in the episode, but just to recap, that they, they're facing like a 35% increase coming don't, up in the short Don't, don't, in the don't face me now, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, in the middle of a uh, worst economic recession since 1929, you know, and the uh, power company is, uh, needs to incre- increase tariffs was applied to the regulator for an increase in tariffs by 34%. And that's only the interim increase because it reckons it needs another like 25% or something on top of that later. You know, and it's just, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating because it's pure incompetence and lack of planning on the side of the, you know, the parastatal there. And what's even worse, you know, all these economists, they trot them all out and they say, yeah, and unfortunately we have to do this. And of course, yeah, we all know we need passage, otherwise we're a bit like screwed, you know, without it. But the fact is you want to see some flipping heads roll, you know, or some oak be taken out for public flogging. Yeah, like the good old days where they took the guy out into the into the into the uh, courtyard and they bloody, you know, do a drawing and courtering on him and hanging him and all of that. And everybody could look, and you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you feel that someone yeah. was made to pay for the cocker. You know, sorry for, <laughs> for that. But yeah, but now yeah. essentially what's happening in this modern world, you know, is that. The managers of these businesses don't accept responsibility for the actions and the consequences thereof, but they want us to pay the costs. Um, and I think that's where mm-hmm. you know, the public in Africa is really getting frustrated with that. You know, I still get their bonuses and they still think they've done a good job and they you know, talk the MBA talk and you know claim how you know how clever they are in management and how it's not their fault. But yeah, you know, as, as you can hear, I get I can get quite um, worked up about it because it's obviously has a major economic impact on inflation rates. I mean, once power goes up by 34%, food prices go up, you know, everything else goes up. So, yeah, it's a it's a major problem here in South Africa. I mean, that's also mm-hmm. is going to be an incentive around for corporates to sort of start looking at um, reducing their power consumption, and especially in the as most corporates, unless you're like a manufacturing institution where you've got big machines running or whatever, you know, most corporates are the service-based, um, like banks and that, main energy usage comes to your computers. So I think it's going to be a major um, defining force in the in the IT industry for, for the next couple of years now. It's energy efficient computing, which mm-hmm. once again plays into the, the big advantage that it has for, for open source software. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and just I guess my final note today then is just that, uh, so it's not just South Africa, it's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, I was. We have a big deployment in Brazil, and and there they've had uh, power rationing because 90% of their hydroelectric or their power comes from hydroelectric generation. Mm-hmm. They've had lower rainfalls, so they haven't had the water to to maintain the system. Mm-hmm. And uh, as well in Ecuador, same thing. So I think this topic of green computing can, computing can be applied pretty much anywhere around the globe. So I think it's a pretty topical yeah, discussion. Okay, I think that's it. Hopefully our listeners found this interesting, uh, less sort of technical discussion, but I think nonetheless an important discussion and something which you know needs to be considered with all the uh, open source projects and how we can start using it as a way to advance open source in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, well thanks for having me today, Mark, and I uh, look forward to doing our next episode together. Excellent stuff. Okay, Raleen, chat to you later. Cheers, everybody. Yep, bye now. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.